There is a, an area in northern Israel, just to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which is today a disputed territory. Um, doesn't have a strong claim by any one country. It used to be part of Syria, and then in 1967, the Israelis won it back. But it sits today really in between the cracks of a lot of, it's a real power play going on over this particular region. It kind of falls between the Israeli state and the Golan Heights region, uh, Syria, and even the Kingdom of Jordan, all kind of want a piece of this particular stretch of land. It's a political hotbed. And it was no less so back in the first century. It's always been a bit of a controversial area. Uh, back in the first century in Palestine, this was a region that was known as the Decapolis. And Decapolis literally means 10 cities, Deca, 10 polis cities. And it, it had never really been part of the Jewish homeland. Never really been considered by the Jews to be part of their turf. It was always across the other side of the lake. It was always over there, Gentile territory, foreign land, pagan turf. And so no Jew in his right mind was ever going to venture over into this place. It was considered completely off limits, completely unclean. It's just the kind of neighborhood you do not want to go into, these filthy Gentiles inhabiting the land, and it's not part of the territory that God had promised to the Jewish people. This is the setting of the story that we come to in Mark chapter 5. We know that this happened somewhere in the region of the Decapolis, uh, what Mark tells us is that it's set in a place in this region of the Gesserines. But the problem is uh, that, that the land is so unfamiliar to the Jewish mind that the biblical authors themselves can't even agree on quite where we're talking about. Uh, Mark calls it the Gesserines. Matthew calls it the Gadarenes. Other manuscripts call it the Gergesenes. And uh, it, what it shows you is that this is so far outside the Jewish frame of reference that they're not even quite sure what this place was called. This is not a place that the Jewish person has experience with or wants to have experience with. It's off limits. They don't really know about it. It happens somewhere over the lake, and that's about all they're concerned with. Somewhere in the Decapolis, probably in a city that was called Gergesa, which today is a little site called Kursi. It's down by the lake on, the, on, a, on a flat stretch of land which is, sits at the foothills of the Golan Heights, this mountainous region. This is probably where it took place. Today, all that's there is a monastery that marks where it's believed, scholars believe this particular incident took place. And what we read in Mark chapter 5 is that in this region of the Gerasenes, in this little place of today called Kursi, there is a man who has what Mark calls an evil spirit. And uh, we've met a few people in Mark as we've gone along that have, that have been in this category, people that have had an evil spirit or an unclean spirit. And it's easy to gloss that. It's easy to say, okay, so they were possessed by a demon. All right, now let's get on to the action. But just for a minute this morning, try and actually place yourself inside the experience of this man from the Decapolis. In all likelihood, he probably used to have a family. In all likelihood, he probably used to have a trade, maybe in agriculture, maybe as a tradesman, something like that. Those were the going jobs in the day. This guy probably had a, a very normal life in this setting, in the Decapolis, and was getting on with his business. But somewhere along the line, he began opening up his mind and opening up his heart to these forces that were much darker than he was. Uh, we don't know how it happened. We don't know when it happened. And it may have been that in the beginning, the, these voices, these forces just offered him a bit of intrigue and a bit of mystery and a bit of superstition and something superhuman, something supernatural. They lured him in, perhaps, with, with, with a taste of power, as Satan so often does. Gives you a little bit. Gives you something that seems so tantalizing and intriguing. And it was enough for him to start opening up his mind and start allowing these forces to get hold. And as he did that, 
as he started opening himself up, these forces rushed in and started taking up residence right in the very center of his being, right in the very center of his ego, his, his selfhood, his personhood. There might have been times when he maybe tried to resist, and you, you can imagine him suddenly realizing that this is not good, this is not what he'd signed up for, and trying to, trying to take back his sanity, trying to take back his mind. But there was a point when the, the forces that were in him were greater than his ability to resist, greater than his ability to withstand. And he finds himself a captive to these voices, to these dark spirits, these demons. They start ripping at the very center of his personality. They start taking over his body and influencing physically what he does so that he becomes violent and he becomes aggressive. At some point, his family would have had to shun him, would have had to get him to leave home. And imagine, in this context, this day and age, the utter shame that would have brought on his wife, on his kids. To have your husband, to have your dad, basically written off as what would today be described as severe psychotic behavior. That's the category he's in. Utter shame. This man is basically seen as a cursed being, becoming more animal than human, someone who is just an abomination. So he's shunned from his family, and his aggressive behavior continues to the point that the villagers have to actually try to physically contain him and subdue him to prevent him terrorizing them, to keep him safe, to keep, him safe, to keep him away from their kids. They physically bind him in chains and shackles to tie him down. He can no longer function as a civil member of society. But in that moment when they bind him up with chains, the forces within him, these demons, these spirits, these voices are so strong, they somehow rise up and actually overpower even the chains that are holding him and give him superhuman strength to break free of these chains. Imagine how terrorizing that must have been for the villagers to have this guy, this animalistic, cursed, possessed man, unable to be physically subdued. His mind was a complete write-off so that he was just utterly tormented and conflicted. He, he stopped speaking in normal tones. He stopped having normal conversations, and all he could do was shriek. All he could do was wail and, and just probably gnash his teeth, foam at the mouth. This was the kind of thing that he had become. And so eventually they expel him from, from the village and just cast him out and push him away and banish him to a graveyard area, to a cemetery, on the outskirts of town, a little bit closer to the lake. And this is where he spends his day. It's a fitting place, I suppose, for him to be because this graveyard represents the idea that while still physically alive, this guy was basically dead in every other sense. Living among the dead, the walking dead, his mind completely overrun, these voices just screaming at him and even robbing him of his own name. We're never told what his name was. He, d he must have had one. But all we're told is that this, this demonic force was so great within him that they gave him a new name and named him after their own presence and named him Legion, representing the absolute multitude of demonic forces that had inhabited the mind and the heart of this guy. His body was completely taken over so that he just walked around naked, probably covered in dust, maybe his limbs all withered up. His mind was totally overrun so that he no longer talked. He just shrieked and wailed, tormented day and night. What you've got here is a picture of a man for whom the image of God has been completely and utterly distorted. This man who was fearfully and wonderfully made has had the image of God marred and tainted beyond almost any recognition so that this wonderful creature that God had designed in his mother's womb had now almost become more animal 
than human. Tormented and conflicted and basically a living dead man. And he's out there walking among the tombs. This is how he spent his days. One night there's a, there's a massive storm on the Sea of Galilee as there so often was in that region. The, the wind would billow down the, the foothills and onto the lake. And probably this man, because he had no real shelter, he would have been lashed by the wind and the rain, maybe just huddling in one of the empty graves or something like that, desperately trying to get away. This fierce storm. And then in the morning stillness, and he gets up and looks out across the lake and sees this small fishing vessel coming into shore. It looked like it had probably been battered around by the storm overnight and was maybe seeking refuge on this side of the lake. And as this man locks his eyes onto that boat and starts to make out the, the, the figures of a few dotted fishermen out there who are seeking some refuge, suddenly he feels this legion within him start to convulse and start to shriek. And maybe for the first time he feels their fear. This man who was so held in slavery by them suddenly feels this demonic force themselves start to fear and start to shriek, and he's writhing around on the ground. He feels within him these demons trying to run this way and then that way, trying to get away, and yet at the same time propelling him towards this boat, strangely moving him forward and accelerating him, and he scrambles down the, the, the rocky seashore and starts running towards this boat, out of control of his own body, out of control of his own mind, unsure why these forces are drawn to this one that they seem to be shrieking and wailing against. They're utterly terrified, and he can smell their fear, but they propel him towards this boat and throw him down face first before one of the men, one of these fishermen. And as he's lying there on the ground, he senses the power of another with him. And he senses the presence of a greater power than the one that's within him. And he senses the presence of one who can break his chains just as the legion of demons broke the chains that the villagers tried to shackle him with. And he senses that here for the first time in a long time there's a new presence and there's a greater power and there's a greater authority that's going to challenge these forces, these voices within him. And you can imagine, the text doesn't give us these details, but maybe we can imagine this man looking up into the eyes of this fisherman whom he'd never seen and didn't know and seeing eyes just full of grace, eyes just full of compassion, maybe eyes full of tears, at how this man made in the image of God had fallen so far from where he was designed and created to be. And at the same time, eyes perhaps full of authority, full of glory, full of power, and full of majesty, even divinity, and he hears and feels these demons within him shrieking and wailing and crying out. And they cry out, commanding his own voice box. They cry out, what do you want with, it, with me? Jesus, son of the most high God. He didn't know who Jesus was. He hadn't heard that name before. But maybe he'd heard of God. Maybe he'd heard of the God of the Israelites, the Jews who lived over in the Galilee region and beyond. He didn't really know what, what was going on, but he, he felt the terror. And he hears the voice come back as Jesus looked at him and locked eyes on him and said to him firmly but graciously, come out of this man, you evil spirit. 
And again, the man's writhing on the ground, this absolute turmoil within his soul as thousands, multitudes of demons squirm and shriek and convulse and start begging with Jesus, start trying to bargain with him and negotiate with him. Don't torment us, they say. Don't torture us. Don't send us away. Luke has, don't send us into the eternal abyss. And Jesus again speaks to him firmly and says, what is your name. And from deep within him, the voice responds, I am legion, for we are many. And we don't know how many. We do know that a legion was a unit of the Roman military. You have a legion of soldiers, and it comprised 6,000 foot soldiers in a legion. Now, we don't know whether that was the equivalent, but it may well have been. A huge multitude of demons. And they start again begging Jesus, begging him not to send them away to eternal torment, begging them not, not to send them too far, but, but they look over here and say, Jesus, send us into this herd of pigs. And perhaps this man looks over and sees this massive herd of pigs on the hillside by the lakeshore. 2,000 pigs, we're told. That's a whole lot of pigs, guarded by a couple of herdsmen. Pigs, again, were completely and utterly unclean to the Jew. You could not imagine uh, something worse that you would want to come in contact with than a pig. It was the lowest of all the animals. And these demons weep and shriek and beg Jesus to cast them into the pigs, not away to eternal torment. And Jesus looks down at this poor, distraught man. Perhaps he lifts his hand and with a gentle word says, Go. And in that moment, thousands of evil spirits, unclean demonic forces, and agents of Satan rushed out of this human body and into a herd of pigs. Just try and imagine what that must have felt like for this guy. We're told at other times in the scriptures when this happens to people, when they're, they're set free, when demons are exorcised, that people just collapse. That for the first time, they're back in their own mind and it's just something that is just, they just collapse in a heap on the ground. Finally free. And maybe if this man had looked over on the hillside, he would have seen 2,000 pigs go utterly berserk. I mean, imagine that sight. 2,000 pigs suddenly run down this rocky bank into the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and are drowned. And you've got 2,000 pig corpses floating around on the Lake of Galilee. This is a hideous sight. This is a horrific thing. And these herdsmen... I mean, tending the, tending the pigs, what are they thinking? They are terrified. And they take off immediately and just, just unable to comprehend what's going on. They start telling people, they rush back to the village and start telling everybody what's going on. But this man, for the first time, is back in his own right mind. Just imagine that. The voices have stopped. The demons have gone. He's thinking his own thoughts. He's thinking Clearly, he's in command again of his body. He can move freely. He can do what he likes. He can sit. He can stand. Things we take for granted, this man has been un unable to do for years. And the disciples run around and get him some clothes to wear and probably get him a little bit of food and just start talking to him. And he sits down. In verse 15, we have this wonderful picture of the man when the villagers finally come out to meet him. We're told that he's clothed and seated and in his right mind. It's just a picture of sanity. It's a picture of health. It's a picture of of wholeness. This man has clothes again. He's sitting down in a civilized manner and he's in his right mind. He's been given his mind back. 
He's been given his body back. He's been given his personality back. He's been given his name back. Even though we don't know what it is. He's no longer legion. He is the man he used to be. And before long, these, these other villages come out. The herdsmen have just obviously raised the alarm. And these people from the nearby village come out. And they see this man sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And sadly, because they can't understand and fathom what has gone on here, they fear it. And they freak out. And they cannot handle the transformation that has happened in this man. This is the animal that they cursed out of their village. This is the man who just posed a massive threat and danger to their children. And now he's here. And he's sane. And these 2,000 pigs are drowned. They just cannot put this together. And they're overtaken by fear. And they even, sadly, start begging Jesus to get out of their region. Rather than embracing the one who's done this. Rather than thanking him. Rather than falling on their own knees and acknowledging his authority and his power. They beg him to leave. Because they cannot deal with this power and this one who has come from across the Galilee and done this thing that is just unbelievable. And they beg him to go. And as Jesus and his companions get back in their fishing boat and prepare to set sail, you imagine the reaction of this guy from the Decapolis, this man who's now been set free. Imagine the gratitude he's got to feel. This Jesus has given him back his life, given him back his mind. And he starts begging Jesus, let me go with you. Let me come with you. He does not want to detach himself from this man. He would do anything. He would die for this man right now. And all he wants is to follow him around and to, and to proclaim this message and let everybody know about this incredible thing that's happened in his life. And he says, Jesus, let me come with you. Let me be one of your companions. Let me follow you. And Jesus, interestingly, he doesn't do this many times, but he says to this man, no, you stay here. You're not going to come with us. I want you to stay. And I want you to go back to your own people. He had a family. I want you to go back to them. You've got a job, maybe. I want you to go back to that. You've got a village. I want you to go back to that. And tell them what God has done for you and how the Lord has had mercy on you. And maybe for the first time when Jesus said those words, this guy realized that the person who had set him free wasn't just another miracle worker, wasn't just another snake oil salesman, but when Jesus used words like Lord and God, suddenly... He realized who it is that he'd encountered here. And he realized that he had been touched by the living God who created the universe and knit him together in his mother's womb. It is God who had met him on the shores of Galilee. It is the Lord who had had mercy on him. And this man willingly goes back and starts talking to his villagers, starts talking to his neighbors, starts talking to his family, unbelievable as it may be, and just telling his story, telling them everything that God had done for him. And Mark tells us that the people were amazed. It's an amazing story, eh? And uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book Surprised by Joy, tells a story of his conversion, his life before he came to know Jesus. And he talks about this before and after transition that's happened. And at one point he describes what his life was like before he came into a relationship with Jesus, before he came into the kingdom of God. And he describes it like this. For the first time... I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose. And what I found appalled me. A zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. It's interesting, hey? When, when Lewis comes to describe his life, that he uses this story as the backdrop to do it. And in some way he sees himself in the picture of this guy 
He sees himself in the portrait of this man from the Decapolis. It's not that Lewis was somehow possessed by all of these demons. It's not that he was possessed by evil spirits. It's that he was enslaved by things in a similar way, by lust, by fear, by greed, by ambition. These things had a commanding force on his life, and they entrapped him, and they snared him just like this man. And I wonder this morning if you can somehow see yourself in the picture of this man from the Decapolis. I wonder if in some way you can see yourself in his shoes, not that you're possessed necessarily by a whole lot of evil spirits, but Satan has many ways of enslaving people. He's got many ways of binding people up. He's got many ways of trapping people. And you may be bound up by a whole lot of things this morning. You may be enslaved by anxiety. If you know what it's like to have anxiety attacks, you know these things just suffocate you. They overwhelm you. It's like just billows uh, just rolling over you uncontrollably like the world is just caving in. These things have a suffocating effect on you. You may be enslaved to that this morning and your anxiety levels just get out of control and you do not know how to reel them in. You might be enslaved to anger and to rage and you hate that thing within you and there's that fire that just comes out. You don't want to vent all over people you love. You don't want to be out of your right mind but in the heat of that moment, and in the heat of battle, you just find yourselves, this thing just comes out of you and you cannot stop yourself saying things that you regret. And you cannot stop yourself just rising up and just having such a short fuse. And you hate it the minute after you've said it. But it's this uncontrollable force within you that's just got you in its clutches and you can't do anything about it. And some of you may be enslaved to depression. It's like you're in a dark tunnel and there's just no hope and there's no light. You're like the psalmist who said, Darkness is my closest friend. It's all you've got. You're just in the blackness and it's just suffocating. And you sometimes you just don't even feel like you can take another breath. You're so beaten down. You're so bound up. Maybe you're enslaved by bitterness and by hatred. Maybe someone, someone has wronged you and there's been this offense committed against you and you just cannot even think about that person without your stomach churning. And you have such a deep resentment for them. You think that by holding on to it, you're hurting them. And all that's happening is it's just eroding your spirit. And it's just killing you. And it's just crushing you. And you are bound up. You are just seething inside. And as soon as you let your mind go down that trail, you just feel your muscles tightening. And you just cannot get out of these chains of bitterness that are holding you down. And maybe you're in chains to a particular addictive behavior. Maybe pornography or gambling, alcoholism. Or even other things that seem so harmless, you know, things like overspending or overeating. These things just have the same addictive impulse. And you hate yourself for doing it, but you just keep going back again and again and again and again. And then you hate it, and you try and lift yourself out of it, and then you just go back, and you just can't stop wallowing in the same mud over and over and over again. And you just feel like this thing has got a hold on your life. You just are, it's greater than your power to resist. And you feel like you just cannot break these chains. These things just kill us. These things rob us of our minds, and they rob us of our hearts, and they make us less human, and they keep us in chains, and they keep us in bondage to the life that God wants to have for us. Maybe you can relate this morning to Eugene Lowry, who describes the experience of this man from the Decapolis. He says, I feel like 6,000 soldiers inside of me. Sometimes they all march left, sometimes right, sometimes in all different directions. I'm pulled one way, then another, there's an army inside me, and I think I'm losing the war. Some of you feel like that this morning, like there's a war going on that you're losing. And man, we're, we're masters of putting on the masks, eh? We're masters of keeping up appearances and playing the social roles and making out on the, on the outside like everything is just fantastic, but on the inside, we're dying. 
On the inside, it is killing us. And there are times when you're just not sure that you can take another step and go another round. You are just so tied up by this thing that's got a hold on your life. And this morning, friends, the man from Galilee has come to your shores. And this morning, he is here. And just as he came to that strange foreign land of the Decapolis thousands of years ago, he has come to us today. And he is here with a greater power than the one that's within you right now that's holding you down. He is here with a greater authority than that thing that's binding you up. He is here with a greater grace and a greater restoring power and the ability to set you free. And the reason that he can do that, the reason that Jesus comes to us as the one who can set us free is because he has become what you are. And he has become this man from the Decapolis. He didn't just go around healing people. He became this guy. He became the story. Jesus became the guy who was cast out of the town, who was banished to a cemetery, to a graveyard outside the village, a graveyard known as Calvary, where he was nailed to a Roman cross. He became the one who was naked and isolated and abandoned and who suffered the full force of every single thing that the evil one could throw at him, the full brunt, the full force, the full effect of the entire attack of the evil one. And he didn't just pay the price for your sin, friends. The Bible says that he became sin. He became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus stands before us this morning and simply asks us, do you want to be free? Because that power that raised Jesus from the dead that power of God that raised Jesus to new life now flows from the Father through the Son and the Spirit to you to restore you, to heal you, to set you free and to liberate you from whatever it is that's holding you in bondage this morning. I think there's a part of us that doesn't want to be healed. There's a part of each of us and it's a dark, sinister part of us but we don't actually want it because there's a sick part that wants to nurse the wound. You find that sometimes? There's a part of us that wants to nurse the hurt. We love the hurt. And we love the anger. And we actually don't want to let it go because it gives us a bit of power. And it enables us to play the role of the victim. And it enables us to keep going and just keep, keep, keep seething. And somehow we think that holds power over others and, and, and it's somehow a constructive thing for us. But Jesus stands there, friends, and he says, do you want to be free? And it starts by us doing exactly what this man did, of falling on our face before Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, and saying, God, I cannot bear this burden anymore. I just can't keep carrying this. I'm sick of pretending. I'm sick of putting on a show. I'm sick of putting on a mask. I'm sick of just acting like it's all okay and just thinking that this is as good as life's ever going to get. I'm sick of just carrying this thing by myself and trying to go on and on and on and on. I can't do it anymore. I'm not running uh, on my own anymore. I need you. I need you to lift this from me, Jesus. And I cast it on you and pray that you would cast it out of me. And the one who holds the power of heaven and earth will do exactly for you what he did for this man. He will set you free. Does that mean you're never going to have an anxious thought again? No. Does it mean you're never going to have an angry thought again? No. Does it mean those addictive impulses are suddenly going to be gone overnight? No. But what it does mean is that you no longer have to live enslaved to those things. They are no longer your master. 
You're no longer their servant. You don't have to be controlled by that stuff. You don't have to believe the lie of the devil that tells you that's as good as it's going to get, that you just have to live as a victim, that you just have to live enslaved to these things, and you never have a position of freedom to be able to deal with them. Yes, it's going to take time for your mind to be renewed. Yes, it's going to take time for those things to be dealt with in your life, but Jesus stands here as the one who can set you free in an instant as we open ourselves up to his resurrection power flowing into our lives to defeat evil because those things, the power of those things was broken on the cross. The power of anxiety to rob you of your life was broken on the cross. The power of depression to keep you robbed of hope was broken on the cross. The power of anger and rage and bitterness and any addictive impulse, it was broken on the cross. And you don't have to live as a slave to that stuff. You just don't. And don't let yourself believe that you do. It's going to take time, but you can work it out as a, as a freed man and woman. It takes time for a prisoner's eyes to adjust to the blinding light of freedom. It takes time for them to adjust to life on the outside. But that's an adjustment they make as a freed person. That's an adjustment they make outside of the prison cell. You don't have to figure this thing out sitting in your prison cell with a ball and chain still tied around your ankles. You can work this out in the power of the Spirit as a freed man or woman by opening yourself up to the healing and restoring power of Jesus Christ in your life. That's the step that he's inviting you to take this morning. He's here with the power to heal, with the grace to forgive and to redeem and to restore and to begin the work of renewal in your life. And the ball is in your court, friends, to reach out your hands and say, Jesus, that's what I need today. I'm not running anymore. I'm sick of this. I'm just giving it all to you. Set me free. Today can be that day, friends. Today can be that day for you where you stop running and stop pretending and start falling down before the one who made you, the one who loves you, and the one who is here to redeem you. Don't let yourself think the future is just going to be more of the same. It doesn't have to be. Not as you take the hand of your Savior and walk boldly into the future that he has prepared for you. He will do for you, friends, exactly what he did for this man. And just as this guy was seated and clothed and in his right mind, so Jesus will clothe you with his grace. He will seat you in a position of intimacy with him. And he will renew your mind day by day, step by step, as he conforms you to the image of the God who made you. That's his promise to you. And he's extending that invitation to you this morning. The next step is really up to you. And that question simply hangs in the air. Do you want to be free?